Acts 17, Paul's missionary journeys are continuing apace uh, and he is continuing to stop in major cities. Uh, At the beginning of this chapter, he actually passes through a couple of major cities in order to get to Thessalonica, the capital of the province, as quickly as possible. And from that point on, what we have in this chapter is the record of Paul's preaching and ministry in three different Greek cities. And um, I want to make three basic points off the back of that. Um, There's a huge, huge amount that we could say about each of these um, little mission stops. Uh, Obviously, the most detailed is Athens, and we'll be spending most time there. But my, my three points are basically drawn from all three of the encounters in the chapter. So we're going to be looking um, at, first of all, Paul's motives for what he does, uh, at Paul's method, how does he go about it, and then at Paul's message, what is it that he actually says in these three cities, in these different situations? Uh, And then I have um, sundry points at the end, which uh, weren't large enough to make a point of their own, and also didn't easily start with the letters P and M. Uh, And so I suppose we could call them Paul's miscellany. Um, We'll get there. So first of all, Paul's motives. Why is Paul doing what he is doing? Well, we get a taste of this, a flavour of this throughout Acts. Um, But I think in this encounter in Athens, we get it really crystal clear from a slightly different angle. Paul has wound up in Athens uh, not by plan. He's actually ended up there because he's fleeing the mob. So he was pursued from Thessalonica to Berea. Uh, Of course, before he was in Thessalonica, he hadn't had a particularly happy time in Philippi either, and he was ejected from there by the magistrates of the city. So now he finds himself in Athens, and he has some downtime. He's waiting for his co-workers to catch up. For whatever reason, it wasn't so dangerous for them to stay behind in Berea for a little bit longer, and so they did so, probably to help the new believers to become more established in their faith. And Paul is in Athens, and whilst he is in Athens, we get a real snapshot of his heart, a real insight into what it was that drove him in his ministry, what his motivation was. Paul starts to do the tourist thing in Athens, which is entirely natural. Um, Athens was a relatively small town in Paul's time, but it had a glorious history. And it was still considered, despite the fact that it had recently, in recent centuries, declined significantly, it was still considered to be in some ways the intellectual capital of the world. This, after all, was where Plato had been. And admittedly, that was a long time ago, but still, this was Athens. In passing, reminds me a lot of Oxford. But as Paul goes around Athens, what he really notices, what sticks out for him, is not how beautiful it is, or how learned it is, or how full of culture it is, but the fact that the city is full of idols. It is... um, almost drowning in idols, weighed down by the sheer weight of idols that were in the city. Uh, We know from other historical accounts that this was pretty much literally true. There were idols all over Athens. 
Um, Athens kind of collected gods and um, just installed them everywhere it could. So Athens was full of idols. And Paul is stirred up by this. He is greatly distressed or perhaps provoked. It bothers him. He cannot stand to be in this city that is so full of idolatry. What Paul is showing, really, is zeal for God. This is the God of the Old Testament, the God who said, I am the Lord, why should I allow another to take my praise or to share my glory? Why should I? I am the God who made everything. The God who said through Isaiah, can you name any other rock? No, there is not one. An idol is an empty nothing. How can you compare it to me? And Paul has something of that spirit in him as he looks around Athens. How can it be that the true and living God should be supplanted by all of these idols throughout the city of Athens? Now it's interesting that in in Thessalonica and Berea we don't hear very much about idolatry. What we hear mainly about in those cities is mission to Jews. And of course we know that Paul's usual method for practical as well as theological reasons when he arrived in a city was that he would go to the synagogue first. He firmly believed that the gospel belonged to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So he went to the synagogue first as he does in Thessalonica and Berea. But I think we can assume that the same zeal that drove him to be greatly distressed by the idols in Athens drove him to want to persuade his Jewish compatriots that Jesus was the Messiah. It isn't good enough for Paul that these Jews may also have a zeal for God it matters that they also name the name of Christ. Zeal for Christ has become Paul's central motivation in his mission. So Paul is motivated by pulling down idols. I um, remember, and you may remember, um, some of you will not remember, Uh, when the the Taliban in Afghanistan, when they were still running the show in that part of the world, blew up two enormous statues of the Buddha. And there was general outrage around the world because these were regarded as magnificent cultural treasures. And I don't think we need to doubt that they were, in fact, magnificent cultural treasures. But, of course, for the people who blew them up, they were more than that. They were idols. They were things that people might worship. The tragic irony of the case is that they blew up those idols in the name of another idol, a false god. Paul is pulling down idols in order to exalt Christ. But it is not so much physical idols that Paul is going after 
going after heart idols. Destroying physical idols might be necessary in some cases. Um, I'm not right now going to suggest that we should go anywhere and smash up any statues. Um, Iconoclasm has never really worked out very well. But it may be necessary in some occasions. But essentially, any physical idol can become just a valuable cultural artefact, beautiful and a wonderful example of human craftsmanship. And on the flip side, any good thing, whether it's a thing that we've made or another person or a hobby or whatever, can become an idol. Wouldn't work if we just went round and got rid of all the physical idols. If Paul had just gone round Athens smashing up statues, idols would have remained in people's hearts. God would not have been honoured. Christ would not have been enthroned in their hearts. The point is not what statues people put up, but the point is what do people worship? What are their lives all about? And for Paul, it is obscene and greatly distressing that in Athens he sees a people whose lives are all about other gods and not the true and living God who has revealed himself in Christ. Already I think we're faced with a huge question because we live in a world where God is not honoured and Christ's lordship is not acknowledged And if I am honest, most of the time, that does not particularly bother me. I've got used to it. I think one of the things that we need to see from the example of Paul is that this matters. It matters that we live in a world full of idols. It is distressing, both for the people who are worshipping false things, but also just for the fact that Jesus is not receiving the honour he deserves. We need to recalibrate our hearts so that that stuff matters to us. There's Paul's motives. What about Paul's method? Well, on arriving in a city, it seems, Paul goes wherever he can get a hearing. I've already said he usually goes first to the synagogue where there is one. He believes that the Jews should hear the message first. And also, in the synagogue, he has a kind of convenient speaking platform. Uh, We saw earlier when Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch that it wouldn't have been unusual for a a visiting person to be invited to give a message. Uh, And so Paul has a a platform ready-made in the synagogue And he has people who already have many of the categories that he wants to use built into their minds. After all, he wants to tell them about the Jewish Messiah. So it makes sense that he starts there. But in the end, he will go wherever anyone will listen to him. In Athens, that means in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. Just anywhere where anyone will hear. And he engages with those people by reasoning and trying to persuade them. In the synagogue, we read that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
So in the synagogue, he starts with the Bible, with what we would call the Old Testament, and which in the synagogue would just have been the Scriptures. And he starts there. And from there, he goes on to say, yes, all of the stuff that this, these Scriptures have been telling and causing you to expect, that has taken place in Jesus. He is the fulfilment of it all. When he's talking to Gentiles, he still tries to reason and persuade. But he doesn't actually throw in nearly so much scripture reference. There's no reference to scripture at all in Paul's speech to the Areopagus in Athens. That doesn't mean he's working um, from a, a sort of a non-biblical point of view. It just means that he recognises that this is a different starting point. They don't have the shared heritage in the scriptures which he could assume when he was in the synagogue. Um, I think there are a number of things that we could do with taking on board from Paul's method. The first one is we need to find out where are the people who will hear, who will listen. It doesn't matter where it is. I do think that part of our problem is that we still operate with a paradigm in the Western Church where we choose the place where the gospel will be spoken and then we hope that people will come in and hear it. Obviously, Paul doesn't have that option. He has to work it the other way round. Where are the people who will listen? I will go there and take the gospel to that place. Again, that's a recalibration of our minds. I think we also need to think about how we use the Bible. It's massively, massively important that the Bible be at the basis of everything that we do when we're trying to reach people for Christ. But actually, we can take from Paul's example that that doesn't necessarily mean that we always need to be quoting it. For some people, that is already an immediate shutters-down, not-listening moment. We need to introduce people to Jesus. At some point, we will need to point them directly to the biblical witness to Jesus. But that isn't necessarily the starting point. In Athens, Paul starts by talking to the people about things that interest them. And then he moves on from there to the gospel. I think the, uh, the big thing to take away from Paul's method for us actually is just this. Um, he does it. I think it's really easy for us to think if we get the method right, then people will believe in Jesus. And I think the key difference between what Paul does and what I do in terms of evangelism is that Paul does some, and I very often don't. He just wants to talk about Jesus. And that drives us back into his motives. If we were concerned for God's glory and for the glory of Jesus, I really do think the method would be almost secondary. We would want to be talking about it. Paul's motives, Paul's uh, method, and then Paul's message. Um, 
In many ways, Paul's message is extraordinarily simple. As far as we can piece it together from the snippets that we get in this chapter, it is centred on Jesus Christ. Do you see, in the synagogue in Thessalonica, his goal is to explain and prove that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead from the scriptures. Because, of course, it would not have come naturally to the Jews there to believe in a crucified Messiah. So he has to go back into the scriptures and say, no, this is what was always going to happen to the Messiah. And then to say, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So we can assume that Paul has told them something of the life story of Jesus, has told them about his ministry and about his death and about his resurrection. And the clincher is, this Jesus I am telling you about, this is the Messiah. This is the one you have been expecting. With Gentiles it's quite different. He starts his engagement in the Areopagus with things that, to be honest, don't look very (coughs) promising. People of Athens, he says, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Um, I think he's being pretty cheeky here. Um, We know that in, in several places, I don't know about this particular altar to an unknown God, but we know in several places altars to unknown gods were put up in the ancient world. And we know there was at least one in Athens that was put up when there was a plague, and um, it was attempted placating all of the known deities, and when that didn't avert the plague, it was decided that there must be another deity that we don't yet know about, and we need to placate that deity as well. And that's one of the reasons why Athens was full of idols. Whether this is that particular altar, I don't know. But Paul says, I can see that you're doing your best to worship stuff. I can see that you're worshippers, that you're very religious. And religious here doesn't have the negative connotations that it might have in some of our Christian talk, where kind of religion gets opposed to true faith. Paul is saying, I, I see that you are genuinely looking for the divine. And that's great. But I also see that you have an altar to the unknown God. And so I see that you don't know about the divine. The stuff or things or people that you're trying to worship, you don't even know about them. And so that is what I'm going to tell you about. And then he launches into this argument about idols and statues and temples. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Now we need to remember who Paul is talking to. He is talking to sophisticated pagan philosophers on the Areopagus. And they knew this stuff. Most sophisticated pagans were well aware that the idea that God was the gods were actually resident in temples was a bit daft. They were prepared to maintain it for the sake of the less enlightened, um, but they knew that it wasn't true. 
And so they are nodding along with Paul here. Yeah, okay, we know that the gods don't really need anything. And as he goes on, he even quotes from them, from their, their prophets. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, the poems he's quoting are about Zeus, uh, head of the Olympian pantheon. So uh, that might not seem very encouraging. But what he's basically doing is he's entering into their world, the world of sophisticated first century paganism, and saying, look, even within your own world, on your own terms, there's quite a lot of stuff here that doesn't make sense, isn't there? Look, you've got all these temples and idols, and you offer all these sacrifices, but you know full well that the gods don't need these things. And in fact, you know that far from the gods being served by human beings, it is in God himself that we all live and move and have our being. Our existence comes from him. So they're nodding along until this point. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Now they might be thinking at that stage, isn't that great that God overlooked the ignorance of the poor and the stupid who don't know that temples are not necessary and statues are not really gods? Isn't that great? Uh, what a generous God he is to overlook those idiots. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And there are a few things in that little snippet of speech to irritate the Greek philosophers on the Areopagus. Firstly, he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Wait, what? Us? Two? We're the clever ones. And bear in mind that in Greek culture, to be clever is to know about God and to be closer to God. And then there's the he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. God just didn't do that sort of stuff in Greek thinking. In sophisticated Greek philosophical thinking, God was pretty distant from the world. Didn't have a whole lot to do with it. But it gets worse. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. The idea that a human being would be God's agent of judgment is ridiculous in Greek culture. It's an extremely Jewish idea. And then to cap it all off, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Resurrection from the dead was not something that any Greek philosopher would have wanted. To be freed from the body was a great thing. That was the goal. To have God put someone back into a body and then make that person the judge of the whole world would have just sounded stupid in Greek philosophical ears. I think it's fascinating to see what Paul does in his messages and helpful to us. With the Jews, he takes the whole long story of Israel which they would have agreed with and which they had inhabited from their birth, and then says, and this is how the story ends. 
with Israel rejecting and crucifying their Messiah and God raising him to life and enthroning him over the whole world. See, he meets them where they are, in the worldview that they hold, telling the stories that they tell, and then he forces them to reinterpret the whole in the light of what God has done in Jesus. If Jesus is really the Messiah, if this is really what Israel's history was always leading up to, then it must have meant something radically different all along. And he does a similar thing with the Gentiles. He gets inside their heads, gets inside their thinking, and kind of deconstructs it from the inside. He gets them nodding along with everything that he is saying, and then resurrection from the dead. And suddenly they're thinking, maybe this guy was not talking about the stuff we thought he was talking about. But the key to it all, to both approaches, is that it is Jesus who has to be proclaimed. He may be proclaimed differently in the synagogue in Thessalonica from the proclamation on the Areopagus in Athens. But in both cases, the message drives towards Jesus. Jesus, the resurrected and enthroned King of the world. Paul's message is, um, if I can nick a book title from N.T. Wright, the story of how God became king in Jesus. Actually, we know that because when Paul gets ejected from Thessalonica, the complaint that is levied against him is that they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The reason they're keen to get him out of Thessalonica and then out of Berea as quickly as possible is because in Caesar's world, you don't want to be associated with a movement that is saying there is another king, Jesus. That is the sort of thing that is going to get you into big trouble. That is how Paul's message that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one raised from the dead to judge the world, that is how it goes down. And actually, implicit in each message, there is this, a call for response. If Jesus is the Christ, if he is the Lord, if there is a day appointed for him to judge the world, then neutrality is just not an option. There has to be personal decision. How do you stand in relation to this Jesus? Now, notice, although Paul always gets to this point of personal response, that's not where he starts. He doesn't actually start his proclamation with, you have a problem and I have the solution to it. It's not about you and me at all, actually, as he starts his message. His message is, God has made Jesus the Christ. God has raised Jesus from the dead. It is about what God has done. His message is much bigger than you and me. It is about God and his son Jesus. But that message has an impact on us here and now. What are we going to do if Jesus is the Christ? If he is the resurrected judge of all the world? 
Um, I wonder what this looks like. This sort of message, this sort of method, I wonder what it looks like for us today. I guess we would need to know, what are people thinking? What are the stories about life and the world that people out there are telling themselves? What are the things that they do and say which they hope will give their lives meaning and substance and purpose? I don't know how long Paul was in Athens, but he seems to have a pretty good grasp of their culture, of what they were thinking and doing. And that's where he starts his gospel presentation. I think sometimes uh, the reason our evangelism just seems to bounce off people is because we haven't worked out what they are thinking, first of all. If Paul had just turned up on the Areopagus and said, Jesus is the Messiah, uh, firstly, they wouldn't have understood him, because that's not a Greek word. And so if he translated it and said, oh, he's the Christ, they still wouldn't have understood him because they didn't know what that meant. That will work in the synagogue. It won't work on the Areopagus. How many times... Do we go out to people with a vocabulary that they don't understand, concepts that they don't use? Let me throw out some concepts which often feature in our evangelism which people don't understand. God. Well, if you say God to a non-Christian, what they're thinking of is probably not what you would want them to be thinking of. It's not the God of the Bible. Sin is pretty much meaningless. Christ is empty of all meaning, actually, for many Christians, let alone non-Christians. We need to be inhabiting other people's worlds before we can speak the gospel to them. It's not a huge burden, actually. It's just finding out what's important to people. Maybe it's really important to them that they work out what the world means. And maybe the answer is, there is meaning in the world because... It is the world into which God stepped in his son Jesus and in which Jesus died and rose. Maybe it's security. Maybe people are anxious. And maybe we can say, God has undone all of our fears by sending his son Jesus into the world to bear the worst of what we and others could do and be raised from the dead and to rule forever. There's stuff that we can do, ways that we can make the gospel communicate. I'm not going to make a ragbag of miscellaneous points, partly because it's quarter to eight, partly because what I'd love to leave us with is this. The, uh, the end of a sermon um, should always be Jesus. But in this instance, it really has to be Jesus. Because it is zeal for the honour of Jesus that gets Paul moving in the first place, that gets him out in the marketplace looking for people to talk to. And it is the name of Jesus which he preaches everywhere. The story of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and enthronement, the fact that he is coming, and it is because of Jesus that people are called to respond. He is Lord. 
What are you going to do about it? I think we need our hearts shifted. I think we need our minds engaged to get a hold of who Jesus is, of what God has done in him, and therefore what it is that people out there need to hear about him so that they too can be put in a place of response. Doesn't mean they'll always respond positively. First two cities, Paul gets driven out by rioting mobs. Um, which is unlikely to happen to you, but you know, if it does, don't blame me. Uh, I have no control over riots. Um, it's unlikely that you'll get that sort of response. You'll get some negative response, but that is not the point. The point is, Jesus deserves to be worshipped, and instead people are worshipping idols. Jesus is raised from the dead and will come to judge the world. And people do not know it. And if you take those things away, if I take those things away, this week and the coming weeks might be more fruitful. Let me pray that that would be the case.